Well, good morning, church, on this Resurrection Sunday. I hope you enjoyed that uh, clip of the garden tomb, which is quite possibly the death and resurrection site. It's one of two possible uh, places where this took place in Israel. I want to just read a little bit of scripture and then talk to you. Luke 24, verses 1 to 7. But very early on the Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. So we know who they were. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, why are you looking for the among the dead for someone who is alive. He isn't there. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. And then at the end of that chapter um, of Luke 24, it says this, They worshipped him. They was the women and the disciples, all of them. And then they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. Well, friends, when you want answers to the big questions of life, if you look at the world and the universe and you see the amazing laws of science that holds it all together but doesn't explain how it actually happened, or you look at our bodies and the intricacies, say, of take an eye, for instance, and you see the, the complexity of in there, or maybe you're a lady and you've, you've had a baby, you've given birth, and, and you see this amazing process, and you find yourself asking, how did this all happen? Is there a purpose to my life? Is there a designer? Is there a God? Because, you know, for many of us, it's impossible to believe that all of this just happened by chance. And so you start to look at what some of the great people of history have said about meaning in life. And it's not long till you come to the claims of Jesus Christ. You know, Time Magazine said about Jesus that he's the greatest, most influential person, not just in a year or a decade or a millennium, but who has ever been born upon this planet. They killed him to shut him up. And soldiers were posted with threat of death if the body was stolen over his grave. And it should have been the end. Jesus should have been lost in the silence of the backwaters of a small country on the Mediterranean. But within three days, people were talking about him again, only this time they were shouting. The body was gone. There were supernatural claims. And it continued, those claims continued to be made for decades and then centuries, and now it's been two millennia. They say he rose from the dead. And therefore, he really is God. And therefore, he actually did die to set people free from their sin and to create a way for relationship with God the Father, a way to enter heaven after this life. I mean, those are massive claims that are made about Jesus. Islam says that there is a life after death, but no one's promised it. If people live good enough lives and obey the law, they call it Sharia, they say Allah might look favorably upon them. Eastern religions 
tell us that when people die, we become part of the mind of the cosmos. We're part of the food and part of the fertilizer for the next generations. But only Jesus made the bold claims of people continuing to exist as individuals, just like they were here on earth. The claims of a loving God preparing eternity for us. That this life is a preparation for the next life to come. And it, it, it highlights the importance of the development of character and skills and relationships in this life with other people and with God himself. You know, Christianity claims this, this world is broken. And as you look around the world, it's not hard to believe that. Yet sin's power doesn't have to control us. We can work to, to build good things into this world. And mostly, and most importantly, Christianity tells us that Jesus is the way, in fact, the only doorway to the Father and to heaven. In other words, Jesus does speak about meaning and purpose and reward and fulfillment in this life and in eternity. It's a really attractive package. But... There's one problem with Christianity, some people say, and that is that it calls people to acknowledge that they're sinners. And then it calls them to stop sinning and to ask for forgiveness and ask Jesus to be the leader of their life. And because of that, some people really want Christianity to be proved wrong. And if you want to prove um, Christianity wrong, you attack the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is false... Everything else is just a house of cards, a pack of cards that'll just tumble. But if the resurrection is true, it's the most important thing in the world. Let me just run over three of the many reasons we can believe the resurrection actually happened. The first one, women were eyewitnesses. You know, in those times, women had no social or legal standing at all. So if these were stories being made up, they would never have had women being the key witnesses. If it was made up to convince people that it was true, it would never have had women at the tomb verifying the story and being the heroes who believed, unlike the men who at first didn't believe. You know, it reads like an eyewitness account because it is an eyewitness account. It's just saying what actually happened. The second reason we can believe the resurrection happened is because it was written in the lifetime of those who witnessed it. And it even names names. And clearly, if someone was lying and someone else knew the truth, they could go to that person and call them out and say, you're lying. But you know, when you go back in history, history is absolutely silent that that, wasn't, that never happened. No one ever did it because it was true. And the, one of the third reasons that we can say that, that it, the resurrection actually happened is because history bears out this massive shift, this massive change that hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands and hundreds and more, more thousands started to believe. Till finally, there were so many Christians across Europe, Israel, Egypt, everywhere that Rome itself converted to Christianity in the third century under the Emperor Constantine. But you know, at the end of that chapter of Luke chapter 24, which is all about the, what happened after Jesus rose on the, on the Sunday, 
It says, so they worshipped him. Now that is an incredible change for Jews. Something massive convinced people. And the only con conceivable thing is that people saw the resurrected Jesus. And later Jesus kept revealing himself to people. You know, one of the ones that had the biggest change of all was Saul. Consider his change. Saul was the Pharisee of Pharisees of his day. He was the young and up-and-coming um, young leader. And he trained under one of the leading Pharisees in Israel. He was devoted. He was diligent. And once he got out of seminary, he was crusading to put down everything that, that um, Jesus had said and any Christian who was saying the same things. He was out to stop Christians, to persecute them, to threaten them, to rough them up if necessary, to imprison them, and he even was prepared to kill Christians. So you've got to ask yourself, what riled Saul up? Why was he so agitated, so angry? And I want to suggest two things. The first one is, he was so agitated and angry by the fact that a man could claim to be God. You know, in, in Israeli thinking, in Jewish thinking, that is just absolutely beyond the pale. In, in Jewish life, um, the Jewish person would not even say the name of Jehovah, uh, Y-H-W-H. We say it, Yahweh. They wouldn't even speak it on their lips because it was so sacred to them. They couldn't even bring themselves to say his name. That's how sacred God was. And to think that somehow a man could claim to be God was just beyond what is possible. You know, it pressed all of Saul's buttons and it filled him with rage. And so he wanted to attack anyone who worshipped Jesus as God. And the whole church in Jerusalem and Antioch and wider into what is modern day Turkey and down into Egypt, they all knew of Saul's anger and determination to wipe out such thinking. And the second claim that really got under Saul's skin was the one that Jesus made that he was greater than the temple. You know that statement when he was standing next to the temple and he says, if it were knocked down, he would rebuild it in three days. Now, the people he was talking to and Jesus himself were talking about two different things. They were talking about the bricks and stone temple they were standing next to, and he was talking about his body. But in saying, I can rebuild it and will rebuild it in three days, in other words, his dead body resurrecting, He was taking everything that the temple stood for away from the temple and placing a new temple of God in his own being. His body would be where sin was dealt with. And Saul was exploding over Jesus saying this. It was sacrilege. It was blasphemy. It was audacious as a statement. Jesus was actually saying, that temple there, it's now irrelevant. Yet it had been the center of the nation's worship. It had been the heart of, of um, the Jews for over a thousand years. And if you go to Jerusalem, like I had the privilege of going uh, last year with, with Sandra and a team from the church, and you visit the Temple Mount, you, you, you uh, slowly get into the actual Temple Mount area itself, go through various um, sort of uh, checkpoint places, 
and, and it's several acres in size. It's a huge area. And on this Temple Mount, there's a, a Muslim uh, mosque been built there now, but it was the same site that once held the temple that Jesus was speaking about and had earlier held Solomon's temple as well. And even today, it's the most holy site for Jews. Um, one of the, the retaining walls, really, that's called the, the um, Wailing Wall, is, is now the most sacred place to go and to pray. And suddenly you realize Jesus was saying, this site with its temple is no longer the center of religion. Its day is done. It's obsolete. And Saul is a top scholar, a Pharisee, was seething, contemplating any human being's audacity to say that. So he's chasing Christians down with special permission from the Sanhedrin to attack and imprison Christians till Acts chapter 9. And that's where Jesus, who has already resurrected and gone to heaven, reveals himself to Saul. And it happens like this. You probably know the story well. There's blinding light and Saul is knocked from his horse. And, and, and uh, Jesus said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he was made blind for three days. Now think about this. For three days, Saul was completely immobilized. He was blind. And he wasn't used to being blind, so he couldn't just grab a stick and go exploring. It would take months, perhaps a year or more, to learn how to do that safely. All he could do being blind was think. So what does he think about? Now remember, Saul carried the Bible in his head. He'd memorized the whole of it. It's all there. And... He's heard Jesus just speak to him and say, I am Jesus, the Lord. He knows that means God. And the Bible doesn't spell it out like this, but it's logical to assume this. He knows from Scripture that anyone on a cross is cursed by God. And he's always thought that Jesus, because he'd thought about Jesus, he knew he died on the cross, he, that Jesus was there for his own sin. That was obvious. Obviously, he was paying the price. He did something wrong. He got killed. Tough. But if Jesus had resurrected, then clearly he wasn't forsaken by God. So he must have been on the cross for someone else's sin. And he would have thought to himself, so whose sin was it? Surely not. And then he would have opened up the book of Isaiah in his mind through those three days. And he knew the Messiah was strong in the first half of the book. But what about this unusual Messiah in the second half of the book? This Messiah of weakness and suffering that Isaiah um, chapter 53 talks about, for instance. And he would have found himself asking, could those two Messiahs be about the same person? A Messiah whose weakness and suffering? Who was he suffering for? And then at some stage through the three days, he would have thought of the sacrificial system in the temple. And he would have asked himself, can the blood of animals really atone for sin? Could all of that actually be pointing towards Jesus and him being the Messiah who suffered in weakness for the sins of others? You see, God had pressed pause on Saul's life for a reason. He'd immobilized him in darkness for these three days, so all he can do is think. 
And suddenly, at some point of that three days, the whole of the Bible would have opened up for him and he would have seen what it was actually saying about Jesus Christ. So when Ananias came to him, he was already ready with the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And friends, nothing short of that sort of powerful experience of hearing Jesus speak to him, seeing the light that, and, and being pushed from his horse and, and losing his sight, and then having the Bible come alive to him could have turned the zealot Saul into the unstoppable for Jesus, Paul. And God used his passion and his zeal and his high intelligence and his focus to take the message of Jesus as Messiah to the Jews, and then to the known world as well. But you know, how Jesus reveals himself to each of us is different. Paul needed such a powerful experience because of his personality and because of the call and the cost of that call that he would have to face. He had to know Jesus deeply in the deepest parts of his heart was real and had resurrected. But all of us, need truth and experience where Jesus reveals himself to us too, however he chooses to do it. You know, for me, my, my first experience of Jesus happened when I was 16 years of age, and it was completely unexpected because I'd been going to church for about 16 years, and nothing had ever happened that was remotely supernatural. And suddenly I heard him speak to me, I experienced feelings of and tears and laughter and dread that gripped me and an awareness of hell and the delight of being saved. And I knew I had met Jesus and he transformed my life and he propelled me into ministry, taking me to where I am today. But here's the point that I really want us to see. Christianity would have completely disappeared in silence 2,000 years ago in this obscure, troubled land but from day three till now, it has flourished around the world. And the reason is, it's because Jesus wouldn't stay dead. He's alive. And because Jesus resurrected, everything he says and is recorded in his word is true. You can be forgiven. And most of you listening to me have been forgiven because you've asked Jesus into your life. You can be free from guilt and live lightly on this world. You are loved. You are under his protection. And he is able to make all things work together for good for those who believe, the Bible says. And what the devil has meant for harm with this COVID-19, Jesus can still turn for good for us and in us. You can be empowered and will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God has a plan for your future. He will not leave you alone. You know, Easter transformed the world. And if that has happened for you, we can join in that response just like the women and the men did. And we can worship him because he's truly an amazing God. And I just want to say for anyone listening to me who's never experienced that change that Jesus brings, why not give your life to him today? Ask for forgiveness, ask for him to be your leader, and you will experience that change that the Bible speaks of, that transformation. It says, as many as received him, to these he gave the power for an eternal life. So we're going to finish this morning 
by hearing um, a testimony from someone in our church. Matthew Cuthbert is going to share his story about Jesus, how Jesus revealed himself to him. So I just want to invite you to sit back a little longer and to enjoy his story. But a couple of questions first. After Matthew's story, what, what, if you, especially if you're in a bubble where there are others there, or maybe you can get on the phone to be able to do this, but why don't you share with someone um, about how Jesus revealed, has revealed himself to you at first and then in an ongoing way over the years. And then secondly, you might just share how you're placing your hope and your confidence in Jesus at this time. Share what's working for you and pray for each other. Here's Matthew. 